Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Politics on Draft podcast. Uh, my name's uh, James Tabor and I'm here with Kartik Sawney. How are you doing, Kartik? I'm good. How are you, James? Yeah, I'm not doing too bad. I'm not doing too bad. How's your week been? What have you been up to? I've been up to a, a lot a lot less politics this time around, but um, a lot overall. Um, my girlfriend's been away, so I've been spending a lot more time with my friends. So, But now she's back, so I'm going to spend a lot more time with her. I've just been working very hard, uh, working very hard, doing a lot of analysing on uh, e- economic stuff, which I'm sure we'll, all, we'll come up to at some point um, in the podcast. But yeah, just been very, very busy, and so it's good to kind of... Just... So what are we going to talk about today? So for listeners, uh, this is how the podcast is going to work on a week in, week out basis. We're going to spend the first half of the podcast uh, talking about, uh, you know, current affairs, talking about what's going on in the news, uh, you know, really honing in on what's been happening in, say, the last week. Uh, And then for the second half of the podcast, we'll go into a topic of our choosing. Uh, We'll get really into the nitty gritty of that, the analytical side of things. Uh, it might be sort of have some links to do with uh, current affairs or it might be completely separate. Um, I guess we'll judge that based on what the subject is. And uh, yeah, so I guess if uh, if you are listening, thank you very much. Grab yourself a drink and uh, uh, yeah, join us in a, what, what should be a very interesting conversation. Uh, so to which I'm going to say, Kartik, let's, let's begin. So um, current affairs... Let's talk about uh, what's on everybody's mind at the moment, which is the cost of living crisis at the moment. Um, yes. Where would you like to start with that, Kartik? Well, um, it seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, we've got. Is it? A... I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Had you not noticed? There's an incoming recession. Uh, interest rates have gone up. Um, there have been lots of stuff in the news about particular cases that are very sad. Um, I read one from a father, I think he was responding to an energy company uh, saying you've hiked up the bill to £286, or he might have been responding to his landlord who'd hiked up the bill as a result of the energy company hiking up the bill. You've hiked up the bill to £286. I can only afford £200. That's what it was before. And now I have to choose between feeding my children and and possibly paying the energy bill. And, And the result of that will always be I will feed my children over paying the energy bill. And, you know, you've got that situation and right next to that, you've got BP reporting, I think, seven billion pounds in profits, tripling Mm. their profits. Um, Mm. So I was explaining to my mum, who's not very politically engaged, why the my my mum's my mum was saying if they are having so many profits, this is someone who is not politically engaged whatsoever. She only gets politically engaged when there's an election. She's saying, why aren't they taking more money away from the energy companies that are benefiting from this? And I said, huh, I don't know, mum. I don't know why they're not doing that. They've got that levy and they're still experiencing £7 billion of profit. So to be honest, like you can you can work out for yourself whether it's an effective levy or not. But um, yeah, no, it does seem that whilst everyone's struggling, uh, the companies that are kind of putting us in this position of struggle, not, not that I'm saying that they want us to struggle, but the companies that are, you know, profiting from our struggle are profiting hugely and much more than um than we were expecting um but yeah so so what did you think of so 
there was a discussion on dividends. Uh, I know we're going to come on to this later, but from the Tory leadership mm. candidates, there were a, there was a discussion on dividends. And I think Liz Truss claimed that, you know, shareholders of energy companies who are being paid massive amounts at the moment as a result of the massive rise in profits aren't just, uh, you know, rich, white, wealthy men. Mm. There are also regular people. What do you think about that? I think it's a bit of a misjudgment to try and suggest that they are regular people because ultimately you need to have the right amount of assets put away mm -hmm. for you to be investing and being a shareholder within uh, BP. Now, everyone can be a shareholder. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. You can, so long as you've got the funds for it. But the simple fact is, is if you said to, you know, if you said to a working class family of, you know, three or four, Oh well, you know, you could be a you could be a BP shareholder. They would probably say, "Well, no, I'm got I'm 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 too busy prioritising feeding Enjoy my children. children, yeah, feeding your children." And so, yeah. I think it's a bit wrong to actually say they're just normal people because yes, they're normal in terms of they may not be sort of you know these big entrepreneur names, uh, mm -hmm. big you know investors who've got multi million pounds worth of assets. But there's still people who can put a bit of money aside and, you know, invest however many, whether it's hundreds, whether it's, you know, thousands into the company. So I, I think that was a bit misjudged from her. But we're, we're going to get on to the Tory sort of leadership and the very different comments that have been uh, said on the frankly awful process that this has been. Uh, Bank of England. Uh, this week uh, on the back end of the Monetary Policy Committee raised the uh, the interest rates um, to I believe 1.75% uh, base rate yep. um, this obviously means a lot of different things for people a lot of people have heard that and say well what does it mean for me um, uh, people with mortgages are going to suffer from this so these are the people 100%. that you know have have assets and are deemed to be the people who could probably put a bit more into the economy mm -hmm. um granted it's a little bit of an interesting one because homeowners still need to pay their bills and if you know homeowners are still having to pay you know 1400 pounds i think it could potentially go up to per year or even more than that i'm not sure on the particular number um you know they're still going to kind of struggle in that but i guess it's kind of deemed that you'd rather put the burden on someone who owns property rather than someone who's renting uh obviously it just depends on what type of uh mortgage rate they have if they have a it's tracker mortgage or standard variable rates the standard variable rate is what the lender's uh rate is and then the tracker mortgage kind of explicitly linked to the bank of england um so they're going to be paying more. I think I read somewhere it's about £38 additional if you've got a £150,000 repayment mortgage with 20 years remaining. So you can work out, say, if it's 300000 if it's whatever, you can kind of work out the um, the stuff on that. But, yeah, I, I, I do think the Bank of England's decision is trying to do a bit of damage limitation. Um yeah, it's it's difficult. I don't think there is one single way in which you can sort out the cost of living crisis. Not certainly from the Bank of England's perspective. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on, uh, on this? Number one, uh, yes, it's going to affect mortgage, mortgage people who have a mortgage much much worse. Um, mm. I also saw uh, something about student loans. Now, I was unsure whether it would be worse 
or better for us, considering if inflation is on a rise, this is primarily aimed at people who have student loans currently. If, if inflation was on a rise, then um, would we eventually, because it's a fixed sum that we have to pay back, would we then relatively have to pay back less? But that's only if wages rise right next to In line you know, with, inflation rise, yeah. which, which it isn't. But <laughs> so I think it's getting increasingly worse for younger people. It's, I, I was having this discussion with my dad the other day that it's, you know, the average salary, if I want to even want to go out and do my master's, it's not going to be high and it's not going to be, well, it's going to be high relative to everything else, but it's not going to be affordable to live in London. How the hell am I ever going to be able to own a flat? How the hell am I even going to, I'm not thinking about it at the moment, uh, but how the hell am I even going to end up having any kids? How the hell am I going to be able to pay back my student loans? Um, it's looking increasingly worse and on top of that i don't know if you saw it but there's a video out from politics joe which mm. big endorsement i love their channel but um of you would also, wouldn't you <laughs> i would yeah uh, being a loony lefty as um you think i am which people on the left don't actually think i am um <laughs> uh but basically they were saying they were speaking to people in canary wharf people who probably work in banking or in 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 law firms earning well over £80,000 a year in some cases, uh, about how much money do you sufficiently need to survive and enjoy London? Uh, mm. And that's not saying have a very, very extra extravagant lifestyle. And one of the people said, oh, it's this, it's this constant line of, oh, you know, cancel your Netflix account and, you know, stop oh, eating avocado yeah. on toast or having coffee outside. And if you earn about 60,000 to 80,000 pounds, you'll suddenly start enjoying it. I just want to say to people who genuinely think that if I stop spending nine pounds a month on Netflix and if I stop spending, you know, 20 pounds on my free prep coffee subscription, then I'm suddenly not going to start earning £80,000. That's not the way it works. I'm suddenly also, not going to have lots of money. But also, you know, money isn't necessarily the kind of the, the thing that makes your, dictates your life, you know, um, in terms of your Netflix subscription might be something that really kind of like gives you a, a break from, you know, the tires, the, the tired nature of working and stuff like that. So I think, you know... <laughs> Like you said, you know, you shouldn't just get rid of your your Netflix account because it's supposedly going to make you more financially prosperous. Um, mm -hmm. Because it's you, it's all it, it's all relative in terms of, you know, what what's going to work, what's going to give you the best life possible, and just having more money or having more disposable money isn't going to isn't going to necessarily. Um, is going to necessarily do that uh yeah i mean the cost of living crisis is pretty bad we're looking at a peak of 13.3 percent inflation and uh looking at potentially five consecutive quarters worth of uh worth of negative growth which you know will put us in a very similar position as we saw in 2007 to 2000 um 2008 and i'm sure we'll we'll get into the nitty-gritty of what the various leaders um are saying about uh saying about that but i want to divert our attention for a second to talk about the international stage um okay and because there is some economical sort of impacts for certain different things that are happening around the world obviously the war in ukraine is affecting the grain situation which is one of the sort of big reasons for this rise in inflation uh 
could the situation with Taiwan potentially exacerbate things further? Um, yes, 100%. I think, okay, I am personally, I, 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 I understand the politics of why Nancy Pelosi decided to go to Taiwan. If you don't know, Nancy Pelosi, the third most powerful person in American politics, decided the Speaker of the House, uh, the, speaker, the Speaker of the House of Congress, if you like, it's just called the House, but we can call it the House of Congress, um, decided to visit Taiwan this week. And I understand the politics of it. I understand it makes you look tough on China from a Republican perspective, and the midterms are coming up, and you need to look tough on a foreign policy perspective. And, you know, I've got polls in front of me right now, 66% of users on the Times agree uh, that it was right of Nancy Pelosi to visit Taiwan, 34% no. But, you know, just to give some context around China, you know, everyone's saying China China has began military exercises over Taiwan. I've got some history on China that I can look back on, but I've also got some facts in the sense that for the last couple of years, every single day, Chinese air activity, Chinese military air activity has increased over Taiwan. So, you know, every two hours there will be a jet flying over Taiwan constantly. And that is to say... If, there, if, there, if there's a jet flying over your country every two hours, it's not just, and nothing's happened. You don't know when the next attack is coming because it could be any one of those next jets. So mm. what's, what's happened in uh, Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is that the number of jets flying over Taiwan has increased substantially. Diplomacy has been completely abandoned. And something that isn't really discussed, and in my opinion, isn't really relevant, is that sanctions were imposed on Pelosi's family. Uh, and herself because of, um, quote-unquote, a disregard of China's strong opposition and stern representations to the Taiwan visit. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I know that there's been a lot of uh, sort of discussion between the uh, the Democrats as to whether or not she should have done it. Um, I'm aware that Biden was slightly hesitant, and uh, and rightly so, because, you know... If we look back in history with regards to US interventionism, it hasn't always been exactly smooth sailing. And so I think it was it was necessary to visit. I just think that they really needed to get it right in terms of how they approached it. They needed to have open dialogue with um with China and sort of say, look. This isn't, uh, you know, sort of, uh, we're not going to specifically just talk about, you know, you. We're going for other reasons as well to kind of, you know, create this link between uh, us and Taiwan. Um, well, I don't think that would necessarily would have changed the heart of the Chinese. But uh, but I, I, I think that the conversation needs to happen. They need to do it in a very careful way instead of kind of doing what the Chinese will call meddling. Um which you know, if you want to agree with uh, that, you can. But... I, I I don't. Um, I fundamentally don't. Well, I want to ask you because you mentioned something. You think it was necessary to visit. Why do you think it was necessary to visit? Because I think there's a dangerous precedent with what's happened in Ukraine. That mm -hmm. this sense of sort of sovereign entitlement and occupational entitlement is 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 is. I don't know where it's I don't know where it's come from. I mean, I know you you know you can look back at the USSR and kind of see you know the the countries that uh, that the Soviet lost, mm -hmm. uh, Ukraine being one of them. Um, 
I, I just think it sets a dangerous precedent. And then it's kind of like, well, where, where does it stop? You know, if China reoccupy Taiwan, then what other sort of things are we going to start seeing? You know, could could Russia then start sort of, you know, going elsewhere in the kind of uh, the Baltic region of, of Eastern, Eastern Europe? And so I think it was necessary for the US to kind of show their support of Taiwan's right to sovereignty. Um, whether or not it was done in the correct manner, in the most diplomatically possible manner, I don't particularly know, and I'm not. I don't really have kind of the best judgment on that. I'm I'm going to pick up on one point that you said. Um, you said for China to reoccupy Taiwan officially, and I might be wrong on this. Taiwan was never really a part of Chinese territory. Mm. Uh, and there's there's a difference between the USSR and, and China in the sense that the USSR actually did hold these states as a union. It was mm. called the Union of uh, Soviet Socialist Republics. China loves to purport this image that China was at one point completely unified. That is completely wrong. Oh, they've been like, broken it's, up and really have, put together and broken up and really put together, yeah. At multiple times, um, and, and, and they want to purport this idea of being divided means that we don't get good things. Yes, it's true. At certain points in time, when China has been most unified, when parts of China have come together through different, under different dynasties throughout thousands of years of history, then good things have developed out of it. But in this context, China was never officially one unison country in completely unified. China has a very, very diverse map, and it will actively stop and even in some case and I'm doing quotation marks here, re-educate people. Uh, I'm talking about the Uyghurs, um, if they do not fit into the Chinese model. So, yes, I think there needs to be more discussion. I, d yeah. I don't think that visiting is going to make any significant difference. The only difference that it's going to make is exactly what we've now done with, uh, with Russia, uh, removing our remo removing our economic dependency upon them and that's exactly what we need to do with china we need to remove our economic dependency upon them i don't know why for the last 10 to 20 years of foreign policy and globalization well i do know why it's because it makes more money for everyone and from a geopolitical perspective it's increasingly damaging that we're now going into saudi arabia for example it's from a geopolitical perspective it's it was increasingly damaging that we have a large part of our manufacturing outsourced to china so, yes, an element of, you know, Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan, possibly in the future, Saudi Arabia with, with something else is, is going to lead to more economic damage. It's not going to lead to economic damage now. And I completely reject the conservative claim that Russia, Ukraine is the reason why we're having these economic troubles right now. Mm. Um, I think there are a multitude of reasons of their own making. Uh, yeah. But we need to remove our economic dependency. Going there is not going to make any difference. Meeting Taiwan, from Nancy Pelosi's perspective, was just a political stunt. That's it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree that the way it was done was not good. Like, I don't believe going there and just kind of sitting down, taking some pictures, and then leaving. Like, of course, it was provocative to the the Chinese government. Of course it was going to be provocative, and Nancy Pelosi knew that. That's why she did it. 
if she went with a set agenda, maybe there might have been some sort of trade deal on the line. There might have been some sort of, you know, uh, actual dialogue that we could have heard and we could have listened mm. to. You know, the, the tension might have been brought down and the US could have actually gone and said, look, we actually went to kind of, you know, try and offer this kind of like peaceful scenario instead of the kind of escalation reaching a new point. But mm -hmm. all they did, as I said, was went, took pictures, looked bold. Uh, Nancy Pelosi got one of the highest honors. Nancy Pelosi got one of the highest honors in uh, Taiwan ease, uh, if that's the way to, to put it, uh, culture and uh, honors list and stuff like that, and then left. It's kind of like I don't think it was done in the right way, and we can talk about the kind of, you know, the geopolitical kind of, uh, you know international relation thing in a in a whole entire uh a podcast topic at a future point um but i'm keen to kind of divert us uh in other places because we've got a lot to mm. get through and uh, i just make one thing clear sorry yes it's just, it's just it's just come to me i personally i <laughs> i would actively encourage discussion between countries like china i think that's the right way to do it but mm. not to the point that you are bringing yourself to dependency yeah, um, I think it's agree. important to have important cooperate. It's it's good cooperation with countries like China, like Saudi Arabia, and before Russia, Ukraine with Russia, in order to make sure that just to simply improve relations, but to simply increase dependency. I mean, William Hague was speaking about uh, Russia wanting to, you know, have a gas like basically sell gas to us. And if we'd done that, that would have been horrible. William mm. Hague was foreign secretary at the time, and he, and he was just completely dodged it, which is the right thing to do. But yeah, so increased Most dialogue, but not dependency. Not dependency. Agreed. Right. We're going to go back to the UK, and we're yeah. going to talk about the, 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 the frankly awful situation that is a really sad situation that's occurred with uh, teenager Archie Battersby. Um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, mm -hmm. for listeners who don't know, this is a uh, this is a child that is currently on life support, um, and the media are kind of making this big thing about how you know the uh, the mum who, let's be real, is in a in denial that her son is unfortunately in a very dead state at the moment, mm -hmm. brain dead um, state brain dead state is is not going to come back and the media are kind of leveraging this to kind of you know say oh you know you know there's this big legal battle that's going to happen we're reporting on it we're going to you know actively sort of encourage the echr kind of engagement and mm -hmm. really it's a really sad situation that shouldn't even it shouldn't be televised on this level in that you know it's gone very is... political hasn't it it's gone very very political yeah. the archbishop of canterbury uh commentating on it you've got the roman catholic church obviously Archbishop of Canterbury uh uh commenting on it that really should not be it should not be this widely politicized mm. um and I think yes you know the right to end a life or the right to assist suicide is a political and legal discussion on its own but the fact that it's being had to this level with a particular case must be really really tough for the parents um yeah what's I mean you we don't have to give any opinions on it because I don't think I hold a right to an opinion about what should happen mm. with Archie, because I think it's entirely up to the family, in my opinion. It shouldn't be up to a court. It shouldn't be up to uh, a piece of legislation. It's entirely the responsibility of the family of what should happen. And that, and that goes both ways, in my opinion. It goes both ways if, you know, 
in one case, if a parent wants feels that the child wants to and and can end its life, it should. And if it and if the parents don't want to, and if they have, um, I forgot the name for it, but if they have a right of attorney, that's the one. If they have right of attorney, then power of attorney. Sorry, then they should hold that opinion. It should not be up to a court, but that's the law at the moment. We're still deciding. We have a very very um, diversified and we have a written one, but a very diversified constitution. What do you think, James? Uh, I you know I. I mirror your point on sort of not having an opinion because I, I my issue with this case is not actually to do with the the case itself. You know, I think that is a situation for um, for the family and the hospital and the courts to kind of talk about simultaneously. My issue is with the the pub the, the way that this has been publicised and the way that this has you know, the media have leveraged this position to get a story. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I, I actually think, to be honest, I think it's utterly disgusting. The fact mm-hmm. that you've got media wanting to get this mother's opinion. And, you know, frankly, you know, from an outside perspective, and I'm sure every one of those media reporters, the, you know, the uh, the cameramen and everything, every one of them know that this is a woman who is really struggling and mm-hmm. who is really struggling to come to the grips that her son is not going to come back from and is 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 not going to recover and she is mm-hmm. in denial mm-hmm. about that and that's really really sad and you know my my total sympathy goes mm-hmm. towards her but for the media to use this as an as a as a time to create a headline out of it to create a story to create a you know i even mm. saw with the bbc news today oh um battersby family exhausted all uh, legal options and it's and it's just like why are we reporting on this why are mm-hmm. we letting this come into the in the public domain and you know our, the, the case the case of archie battersby is not uh, not unique in terms of there mm. have been other situations like this has happened that haven't got the public um kind of image and i know the reason why it's become publicized is because of the the fact that they've tried to go through so many uh, legal routes they've tried to you know and the fact that she's in denial of mm-hmm. uh, her child's uh, current state sort of adds to the the situation but yeah it's just horrible and mm-hmm. i think the media should be massively ashamed with themselves as to how they've gone about this I agree. It's just been constant headline seeking, headline seeking, headline seeking, and it's been going on for a while. Uh, it's mm. been going on for a couple of months. That uh, it should really just be up to the family. It is a private family matter, and yeah. that's where it should end. It should not be. If I if I've just managed to open up the BBC news on my iPad, it should not mm. be the first thing I see. And it's not because I don't necessarily not want to see it, but it's horrible for the family. Yeah, massively, and the trauma that they will endure from this the constant media attention that they will get you know and the the constant headlining i i i expect that they will really struggle with the Mm. aftermath of of all of this and Mm -hmm. i think that is just that that is a real indicator of the the bigger issue which is to do with the british media and how they conduct themselves and 
you know, we saw it with the the Martin Bashir interview um, mm -hmm. with uh, with Diana, and mm -hmm. yeah, I think that it's there is a real issue there that needs to be sorted out, and that is the issue of uh, media conduct. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have Actually, anything else to add to that, or would we? Uh, want to no, I was. Uh, I I don't have anything to add to that. So now we come to our last current affairs story, which is actually going to link to our uh, sort of thematic topic that we're going to discuss. Uh, it's going to be about the Conservative Party leadership contest and the hustings that have happened in the last week, and also then after the break, we're going to discuss what the status of the Conservative Party is now and what it's like. What's the internal politics like? James, would you like to introduce our final current affairs topic now? Okay. So, meet the candidates. No, uh, we all know who the candidates are. We've got Rishi Sunak, uh, MP for Richmond and former Chancellor of the Exchequer. And we've got... Rishi Rishi. Yeah, Rishi Rishi. And we've got, uh, we've got uh, current uh, Foreign Secretary uh, and International Trade uh, Secretary um, Liz Truss, MP. Is he, is I, don't know, I don't know where she's an MP for. Um, I, I don't yeah. care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay. so, no, I, I, I care about the constituents. I'm sure the constituents are very, very upset with having Liz Truss as their MP. I would be. Yeah, or maybe they're delighted. I guess it maybe they are delighted. I mean, they yeah, did. Yeah. They did. They did vote for her. Let's the end check. Of the day, so, uh, yeah. But um, but whilst you're doing that, let's. Uh, I'm going to quickly just go off on on one here because I want to talk about the Tunbridge Wells situation, which oh, was a, <laughs> which was I know. Uh, I'm, I'm really getting uh, Karthik worked up by going straight into this because I know he has very strong feelings about this. But this is the situation, if you didn't know, that um, in a leaked video of a uh, speech that he gave at Tunbridge Wells. Uh, it's, it's, he wasn't trying that. to. He wasn't trying to like sort of say it under his. Yeah. Under the he said that very <laughs> loudly. <laughs> very loudly said that he's been streamlining. Whilst he was chancellor, he streamlined. Uh, uh, funding from deprived urban areas to deserved areas such as Tunbridge Wells, Tory safe seats, you know the deal. Let's talk about the corrupt nature of the Tory Tunbridge party. Wells, Seven Oaks, et cetera, et cetera, et yeah. cetera. So um, awful. Uh, I is that awful. Uh, yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't so. quite know what to say because I, I saw it and I was like, did he really say that out loud? I know they always think it. I, I say they, I mean conservative yeah. parties, uh, conservative party members. I know they always think, oh, you know, we shouldn't be funneling money to these urban areas that are labour safe seats, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm shocked that he said it out loud. And I think it's because he's desperate because of how far back he is compared to Liz Truss. He's been saying a lot of stuff like you know, what was it prevent uh stuff he was talking about prevent and you know if you convey and sort of anti-british sentiment then you'll have some re-educating yeah. classes yeah, and it's, 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 it's shocking it's shocking that we were just talking about china yeah i was gonna say uh... and it's it's it sounds very very i'm gonna use the f word fascist <laughs> it's scary yeah. it's really 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 scary the fact that it, we've got a senior conservative saying this stuff yeah i think uh he is very dangerous uh for multiple mm -hmm. different reasons um you know uh, Bor boris pretended to be uh one with the people it just seems as if uh as if rishi sunak uh just he's completely admitting his mm -hmm. uh 
his sense of entitlement, his sense of being above uh, everyone, and I, I, it's just utterly awful to see. I, I agree. I'm I'm very I'm very shocked for words mm -hmm. and surprised that he would be so blatant. Um, it's it was it, it was all a part of the leveling up side of things, right? It was all it was all a part of him saying, "Look, this is me taking money away from areas that have got too much money in the past, and I'm putting it into deprived areas." First of all, Tunbridge Wells, it's not too far from where I live. It's not a deprived area. People there are very, very wealthy. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's not a deprived area whatsoever. It's got decent trans transport. It's got very, very good transport links into London. You take one, one train and you're straight into London. So he was talking about mm. better transport links and high quality schools. It's got a very, very high quality school there as well. Mm. Um, I'm not sure about broadband. I haven't spent that much time there. So you know but it's it's all a part of him saying look i've i'm i'm do i was the person that did the leveling up i'm putting it into these deprived areas from urban areas and i'm taking it away and he says deprived urban areas first of all he hasn't done that sufficiently whatsoever leveling up has not worked let i i agree with the motivations behind leveling up in the sense that there are areas of england and scotland and wales and northern ireland that have not received any attention first of all leveling up only addresses england which is something that's been commonly ignored. It so far has only addressed conservative safe seats. And it's just not worked. The, the divide between London and these other areas is still very much there and it's getting wider because of the situation of our economy. So it's, they don't care about normal people. This is evidence of it. It's a desperate attempt to, uh, to drum up some extra support as have other policies been. So it's just yeah. made me really, really angry. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm going to give another situation that uh, I found myself reading about to do with Rishi Sunak, and that's the whole thing that in his own constituency of Richmond, now I've not done extensive background reading into this, they've got some sort of swimming pool, I don't know if it's a LIDA or whatever, they've got a swimming pool that uh, it has lacked funding for years, it's kind of, you know, in a bit of a grim stay, uh, it's not really survived well from COVID and stuff like that, and... I don't think he's really given the necessary funding it would need to re-establish itself, encourage physical activity to kids and to families and stuff like that. And at the same time, he's building a swimming pool in his house. He's That's what I was going to say, wasn't it? Wasn't it going to be a swimming pool yeah. in his own house? House, <laughs> mansion, whatever he lives in, estate probably. Um, yeah, I, and that's another particular reason why I'm just I'm so baffled that this man is potentially going to be someone who is supposed to represent this country for all its values now I know mm -hmm. like that that in itself is his own discussion as to whether you know a prime minister can be truly representative whether it's their job to be truly representative because if you mm -hmm. want to be constitutionally speaking they only need to represent their constituency so the only people that uh sunak needs to represent is the people of richmond which by the sound of it he's not really doing a great job is he no. um so yeah is, it just baffles me. the question the question i want to put to you is is liz truss any better and i think i know the answer not really but for different reasons uh mainly economical i do, i think she'll do a lot of damage uh to this country if she goes with the current sort of policy that she is is talking about uh but mm -hmm. e equally i don't think she's as credible and 
uh, integ uh, has got as as much. Uh, I don't think she's got similar levels of integrity as uh, as Sunak. I think that she, you know, she says one thing, does the other. Mm -hmm. um, she says stuff, you know, like she. She she says that oh yeah we need to you know Rishi doesn't know what he's talking about because uh, because she, uh, he went to private school and uh, I think it was you who told me that she sends a private school who sends a kids to private school yep she so, does <laughs> um, so it's and, just, it's, and her her school was also very like uh, when she did that when they did the hostings in Leeds uh, they a conservative member came out and said I was quite angered by that because that is the best school in Leeds. So mm. what, what I wanted to, uh, to get out of you was uh, a statement that she made about Nicola Sturgeon, which I thought was another statement just to drum up Tory support. Um, yeah, go on. What do you think about that? What is that statement? Well, the statement was that she said that the best way to deal with Nicola Sturgeon is to ignore her, um, mm -hmm. which, again, I know the reason why she did that is because, you know, she's trying to appeal to the unionists of the Conservative Party, which is all of them. And, uh, and, you know, they obviously all don't like Sturgeon. And, you know, like, tactically wise, it's probably not a bad thing for her to say because, you know, she's going to get support from that. But if you sort of look at the politics of that, uh, mm -hmm. You know, w me and you cost, uh, always talk about the fact that an open dialogue needs to happen in all realms of politics and simply suggesting that you're going to ignore the first minister of Scotland is mm -hmm. is, is an awful thing. Now, look, I don't agree with a lot of what Nicola Sturgeon says. I don't agree with the Scottish National Party uh, project, but, but I, I would never completely, you know, say that a d open dialogue with her needs to be off the table because yeah, it's, it's just I, basic diplomacy. I had this discussion with um, my friend who's an SNP member, uh, and I had, a, I had a discussion with, you were there, and then after that, we, all, we continued mm. our discussion. Um, he just says it's just going to make it much, much worse. And I think after, I, I might be wrong, so I encourage everyone to go and look at the polls themselves, but mm. previously it was 47% no, they don't want a referendum. 44%, yes, they do want a referendum. 7% undecided. That undecided number dropped significantly. That no mm. number dropped significantly. And that yes mm. number shot up. So, I mean, that was another really, really, really stupid statement to make. And arguably, the statement that Liz Truss made had more negative ramifications for the union and for the whole of the country than Rishi Sunak. So... If you if you want to ask which one is less bad, probably Rishi Sunak. He's also pretty effing bad. Sorry, um, James got to me about yeah. my swearing last time. Uh, yeah, we're gonna move. We're gonna move on because I'm I'm conscious of the time. Uh, I'm not gonna kind of do this as a a sort of a set break where we pause and all that sort of stuff. But we're gonna talk about the current sort of state of the Tory Party, and we're gonna kind okay. of talk about that now me and Kartik haven't actually done any sort of discussion prior to this we spoke about the current uh, affairs and such but we haven't actually talked about the current state of the conservative party because i think there's different area different kind of places that we will come from in our views you know Kartik is a member of the labor party so his yep. view on uh, the conservative party is going to be very different to mine. I'm not a member of any party, so I'm coming from this in a, a 
purely so politically apathetic of you yeah <laughs> i know i'm just taking the political high ground with this one as you'll constantly see in this podcast um as kartik tries to get me to join the labor party you um, will join the labor party okay uh, <laughs> and uh yeah so we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh this and we're gonna probably have quite sort of different views or views that come from different places. So, mm -hmm. Kartik, in all of your mighty Labour wisdom, what is your opinion on the current state of the Conservative Party? I think it's now more divided than ever. Uh, I think it's gotten progressively worse under Boris Johnson. I think Boris Johnson wanted to divide. Well, I don't think he set out to divide it, but we all knew what was going to happen. But I'm more than happy to have a sort of more objective view of the of the Conservative Party over the last 20 or so years. I think we need to tap in what is sometimes very, very rarely discussed, which is a Conservative working class, the right-wing Conservative cla uh, class that don't, the Conservative supporting class, that no one really seems to understand. And that has always existed, a lot of people claim has suddenly risen up after Brexit, but in my opinion has existed for a very, very long time. And they have recently been propping up the ERG, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this levelling up agenda is entirely targeted at them. I know Tunbridge Wells, and, Tunbridge Wells is an entirely working class, but this is, that is exactly who levelling up Brexit, these sort of policies, are targeted to. And you could call these a red wall seats, seats mm. that previously used to be uh, Labour and are now Conservatives, and in my opinion, I think are going to go back. So... I think it's been a long, long, long time. Uh, it's been a very, very long-term grassroots movement uh, that has recently risen up and given a very, very populist sentiment. I think the ERG is a populist element of the Conservative Party. I think the Conservative Party itself has become a very, very populist party itself, um, where it just says things to drum up support. That's where you get... You can't even call them gaffes anymore. It's, it's, basically, it's basic policy ideas that they've absolutely muddled together in order to drum up membership support. Um, mm. And the reason I say that they're more and more divided now is because you've got the situation where you're having a leadership election. Both candidates are somewhere between 22 and 27% uh, in terms of support from the members. But the one person who's leading, uh, leading the support in for, at 40% is the current prime minister. Mm. So you've got the MPs and the members who are inherently divided. And conservative MPs largely tend to be wealthy white males. And I know Rishi Sunak is cha challenging that uh, sort of is, is challenging that model, but l the large number of them are conservative white males. So I think we're seeing an inherent disconnect between the membership and the MPs, and we're seeing a disconnect between the conservative working class and the conservative MPs who tend to be relatively high class. I mean, only look at just look at Jacob Rees-Mogg. He gives cricketing analogies for politics, which he got wrong. But that's just remember me. that Jacob Rees-Mogg is middle class. He said it himself. He's is he? Class. Yeah. Is he really? Oh, so, uh, yeah. yeah. So no, don't don't yeah, diss Jacob Rees-Mogg and his. Uh, um, I really yeah, believe I, him. I I completely agree with you with your um with your kind of identity crisis analysis of the Tory party. Um, I, it's in this weird space where it's bizarre because more than ever, 
people are saying that the Tory party are showing the levels of elitism, which were always there. But mm -hmm. I think the Tory party just had a very good way of kind of sort of hiding it, putting it to one side, however you want to describe it. And the reason why is they had because a good way of hiding the elitism. Yeah. No, but, the, no <laughs> the reason why that they, they were able to, I, I, that's why I don't want to say hiding their elitism because people knew mm. it was there, but rather kind of putting it to the back end of people's mind is because uh, okay. Okay. of their management of the economy. It's been their USP is that they've been able to manage the economy. They've been able to get us out of rough times, such as the 2007 to eight situation. They got us out of the financially difficult times of the sixties and the seventies. And that that's kind of been their unique selling point but they've now not got that they've now not got that because they've you know struggled to keep uh inflation at bay they've struggled to um you know uh with the sort of financial situation that covid brought about and their sort of mismanagement of various different things mm. and it's to the point now where because people can't be like, oh, you know, they're the business people, they're the, you know, they're the party that uh, sort of economically the best for people. It's now we're starting to see those things that the Tory party were putting at the back of people's minds, the things like the elitism, the cronyism, the, uh, the, the chauvinism, the, you know, the, the scandals, the scandals, the, you know, the corruption. And oh, now they're more it. present. Now that, yeah, I know, I did use the C word. I didn't think, yeah, you probably didn't think I was going to bring that out. But, I didn't uh, think you would, not for the Conservative Party with your, uh, <laughs> you know, fisc fiscally right and socially left policies. Kartik <laughs> <laughs> uh, thinks I'm a closeted uh, Tory. Uh, so we're going we're, we're gonna to slide away from that for a second. But, um, but yeah, I think that's that's the issue that's happened and you know i was very at one point in my life very sympathetic to the kind of one nation uh style of politics and i i'd say i still kind of have a a slight amount of kind of empathy to that kind of way of thinking but that's been completely expelled from the party and i think it's very disappointing because it gave mm -hmm. a level of criticism over the tory party's own politics and it kind of gave you know the right side of the very the very traditional the very pragmatic the very um you know the very right wing side of the party it gave them a sense of scrutiny within their own factions but boris johnson expelled that because he basically uh, adopted this kind of yes man type of politics of well if you don't agree with me you're not going to be part of it and uh you know it's why you don't see the 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 kind of the the David Camerons, the Amber Rudds, the uh, the Rory Stewarts, uh, mm -hmm. the, the um, uh, Philip Hammonds, the uh, George Osborns of of politics. Now, I'm not saying that they were all brilliant people, and that we should all start listening to them because you know mm -hmm. David Cameron had his faults, George Osborne had his faults. Their you know their decision to do austerity politics is obviously something that's damaged our public sector, but mm -hmm. it in terms of the kind of actual the way that the party and the way that government conducts itself especially they've they've really lost it and mm -hmm. i think people are sick of the tory party at the moment they're absolutely sick of it and so i don't think they're going to win an election in 2024 that being said i don't think it's going to be 
just a simple fact of oh labor are going to win it and we had the mm -hmm. conversation last week which we might publish we might refilm again depending mm -hmm. on what happens in the next few weeks i don't think it's going to be as easy for just labor to take it but I the, the, the tories are in danger the tories, the tories are definitely in danger. danger i don't think there'll be a majority labor uh win but i think it'll be a minority labor win but i want to say i, I want to pick up on something you said and i don't want to let you get away with it you said mm. uh you said that the conservatives were good at managing the economy and that the cameron osborne years were effectively did you correct me if i'm wrong here you sort of insinuated that they had done a good job of getting us out of the 2008 um, no i don't i don't want to i don't want to insinuate that economically they were the best best uh you know situation guy, but, but they kind of emulated this idea to the public mm -hmm. that they were the best economical situation they're going to be the ones that make business okay, thrive and stuff. so you think they were very good at communicating themselves as you know the the proper people who can manage the economy and and who, who understand the numbers and there was probably a sense of elitism in that as well yeah there's a sense of elitism but it's not this kind of us versus them kind of situation populist that you've got narrative. now, yeah, okay. narrative that you see now. And actually, my my issue is not with the policy because policy is always going to be contentious. Whether you're Labour, whether you're Conservative, you're always going to have people that either agree or disagree with your policy. Mm -hmm. My kind of aggravation with the current Tory party is to do with the way that they conduct themselves and the way that they approach government. I think it's just totally awful, and it's this kind of sense of like nepotism and kind of entitlement that I just don't think belongs in government and doesn't belong in politics. And <laughs> I, whilst, you know, you could argue that the people like David Cameron probably always thought that they were going to be prime minister. Do you know what word I was thinking of when I was going to say challenge, challenge you on managing the economy? Do you know what word I was going to think of? What was it going? What word it was, was it starts with an A, ends with a Y. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and true, and I, 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 it's why austerity. I referenced austerity. I referenced yeah. austerity when I was talking about it just then yeah. because it wasn't a good uh, management strategy, and that's something. But, but equally, I think that the the One Nation side of the party were very uh, after austerity were very sort of conscious of saying that there there were things that they should have done differently i've listened to rory stewart a lot of times talk about how there were things that could have been done better in terms of coming out of the 2002 uh 2000 2008 financial crash it's, it's very easy time. to say there were things that could have been done better but when you're heading into well we're in the middle of a leadership election where you've got the the Problem, the most likely Prime Minister, Liz Truss, suggesting policies that is going to put us in austerity in two to three mm. years' time, then you don't re I don't think the Conservative Party, even even the sort of centre or even the quote-unquote left wing of the Conservative Party, mean that they could have done things better. Because no one's out there saying, other than Rishi Sunak, and he's saying that for personal purposes. No one is saying this is going to lead to austerity. No one is saying what happened under Cameron Osborne was a bad idea. No one's being vocal about that. No one's actually willing to say that this was bad. This is what resulted in massive cuts in the NHS. This is what resulted in much less policemen on the streets. And I know I've I think the reason, the, police, but... the reason why you might be saying that no one is is hearing 
this or no one is saying it is because I think that the Tory party is, is, is at the moment is going on this idea of muffling those voices because there will be people within the Tory party. There will be ex, uh, you know, cabinet ministers under the coalition government who are very nervous about this current situation. Mm -hmm. But the Tory party, and I've said, I've said it again, that, you know, I've currently got this yes man idea of you know well if you don't agree with us we're just not going to even give you the platform yeah. and so the Tory party at the moment try to sort of say oh well we've not done anything wrong we've done amazing things the vaccine rollout was a success this you know mm -hmm. they're buzzwords that they say every week in a week out and it gets totally boring they mm -hmm. just can't admit to being wrong and it's why for all his <laughs> faults yeah. it's why for all his faults I was very enlightened when Matt Hancock came out on the Diary of CEO uh, uh, podcast and said, you know what, I will ha hold my hands out and say things were wrong and there was a serious lapse of judgment. Do I agree with him as a character and some of his policy and the way he conducts himself? No, I don't believe in, mm -hmm. in him as a character, but at least he had the integrity to come out and say this was done wrong this was done wrong and we should have done better. If you can know. get me a clip where Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss has said, we made a mistake and I will make it better. I, I, I genuinely, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, James. I genuinely could not give, I'm, I couldn't, mm. I, I, I don't care if you came on a podcast and said, I'm sorry, this was done wrong. You know, mistakes were made, but you know, we're only human. This is people's lives we're dealing with. You can't just say, no, oh, I, yes, I agree. Yeah. If, if, you, if you genuinely believe, and if, you, if the Conservative Party, you know, and you're saying that they're not vocal about it because these voices are being muffled, there needs to be an inherent change. There needs to be a change of government, in my opinion. And that's not just yeah. from a Labour Party perspective. There definitely needs to be a change of government because you've got. It, it just it's just simply not working it's just not working you've got i'm sorry i'm just too angry to say anything. I, I don't want i don't want them to come uh, come on a podcast and say sorry mistakes were made etc 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 when you know 160,000 people have died when you were health secretary matt hancock mistakes hmm. were made they weren't just mistakes lives were lost yeah of course and you know that's something that he's going to have to you know deal with as a kind of you know something that he himself will have to live with and i hope that he you know constantly looks back at that and kind of is reminded about those failures mm. um but you know in my personal opinion i'd much rather see someone come out and you know admit, admit their wrongdoing than someone who just who still refuses to believe that there was any wrongdoing and it's the same with Boris Johnson and I was at one of the most I think out of everything that he'd done all of his scandals one of his most disappointing moments was the way he went about resigning which was basically him saying I don't I don't want uh, you know the reason why I'm leaving is not because of me it's because mm -hmm. of the coup that has happened against me and then all I think that was laughable I think I it was laughable when he said Oh, I'm going to leave with my head held high. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go on. No, no, I agree. That's, an, that's a good point to say is that, you know, he, all of the problems that emulated because of him, you know, 
well, you have 50, uh, 50 ministers resign in 48 hours to then go and say, well, it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that they ousted me. It's, it's like, well, have you considered why they resigned? Potentially? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he has, like, but I'm sure he just doesn't want to admit it. He doesn't I, want to admit, I, he's in denial as well. Uh, you know, a little callback to the sort of denial we were talking about earlier, a different type of circumstance, but he is in denial. He is, you know, constantly. And, and I think that's the, that, the, the Conservative Party are in denial about mm -hmm. about everything they're in denial about um the way that they can conduct government they're in denial about the way that they can manage the economy and they're certainly in denial about their sort of you know belief that they can be the best government because if this is the best government then my god is is the uk Which, you know uh, and I, i'm gonna do it now absolutely fucked Oh shit! Okay. I'm going to use it. <laughs> well, that's a swear gonna, now. <laughs> I'm going to use it. I, I, I'm going to oh. use it because it does make me very, very angry, and it makes me angry. And I'm not saying that I'm this avid patriot, but mm -hmm. I think that this this country could do great things. But seeing it under the management of the Tory party is just uh, it's utterly shambolic and yes i agree with you there needs to be a change of government whether that's going to be through labor whether that's going to be some completely entirely different thing i don't know about just get this current style of government out because it's not working i'll leave you with something a, bit, a little bit on a lighter a lighter note i think i think <laughs> maybe maybe i drove part i cycled when I was so basically, I was cycling past the backside of 10 Downing Street, and a convoy of two Range Rovers and a bunch of police bikes cycled past me. And I was going towards Hyde Park. Um, and by the time I got to the end of the Mall, and by the time I could see Buckingham Palace, uh, a helicopter took off uh, from the Royal Barracks. So maybe I think Boris Johnson drove past me. I should have egged him, but please don't put me on prevent for saying that I should have egged him. I mean, you've been within potentially 20 metres of Boris Johnson. How do you feel? Oh, God. I'm going to go throw up now. But yeah, that got really heated, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I just get really yeah. angry when you talk about it. But anyway, um, thanks no, for listening. I, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, and I think we're going to end there on that. Um, you know, it, it's a bit of a depressing note because <laughs> we're talking about the potential downfall of the UK and hopefully we can come back and maybe six months later and be like, oh, yeah, well, look at that. But I'm not so optimistic and I, I don't I'm think you are. Well. Six months, no. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, so uh, from my perspective, I'm going to say thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, today for our inaugural um uh, episode please uh follow the podcast uh you can follow us on twitter on politics on draft and uh yeah thank you very much for joining me on this journey kartik um thank you and, james and hopefully many more to come is there anything else you'd like to add kartik before we finish no uh thank you for listening for for the first time and um see you next week see you next week bye bye bye